Welcome to the Five Buy, your one-stop shop for rapid-fire board game reviews. In this episode, Sarah goes solo with Under Falling Skies, Meeple Lady battles it out in Radlands, Ruth hangs out under the sea in Aqualin, I join the circus in Scout, and joining us for the first time is Aaron with the review of Bittersweet. Rows of alien ships bent on destruction. Dropping closer and closer to your city, you can blow them up but they just keep respawning. And the time you have to knock them out before they reach the ground gets shorter and shorter, so the tension is constantly ratcheting up. No, I'm not describing space invaders. Well, I am. But I'm actually describing Under Falling Skies, a solo board game from Tomaj Olige and Czech Games. I'm not the first person to compare Under Falling Skies to Space Invaders, and I won't be the last. But Under Falling Skies isn't just a cardboard replication of Space Invaders. There's a clever dice management game here. In each round, you roll five dice, and you have an action board with rooms you activate by placing a die on them. But of course, there are complications. First, each room's effectiveness is based on the value of the die you put there. So you want high dice rolls, right? Well, when you place a die, all enemy ships in that row drop down that many spaces. So you want low dice rolls, right? Well, sometimes you need to move a ship down five or six spaces to get it positioned where it can be attacked, or just to get it past a space where something bad would happen. I guess you want high and low dice rolls. That's one complication. I said there were a couple. Because the dice control ship movement, every row has to have a die in it. That means you can only place one die in each row. This can be tricky, especially early in the game where you don't have access to the entire action board. You might really need two different actions that are both in one row. Plus, you knew there was more, right? Two of your five dice are white, and whenever you place a white die, you have to re-roll all the dice you have left. That can mess you up or can be a real boon if you're careful and trigger that reroll at the best time. When your dice roll works just right and you place them in the perfect order to pull off a killer chain of actions, it feels so good. And when you can't, it's maddening in the best way. Placing dice in the right columns in the best order where you'll get the most effective actions and the ships will do the least damage, it's a lot to juggle. Sometimes you focus on destroying as many ships as possible, then realize you haven't given yourself a high enough attack action to get them all. Or you have a perfect set of actions lined up, and then realize you don't have enough energy to do them all. And you either don't have any dice left with a high enough pip value to get the energy, or the only energy room is in a row where you've already got something you really need to do. But you really need the energy. But if you use that row to get the energy, then you don't get to do the other action, so you don't need the energy anymore. Games can have good frustration or bad frustration, and Under Falling Skies is full of good frustration. While I'm working out what I'm going to do in a round, I like to set each die at the edge of the board on the row where I plan to use it. That helps me avoid committing too early, placing a die in a room that would mess up the rest of the round. I do think this game could really encourage AP. You can spend a lot of time parsing out possible combinations. What if I put this here and that there and then that one over there? But then what if I put this one there instead? On the bright side, because it's a solo game, there's no real consequence to AP. You wouldn't be holding up the game for anyone else. In fact, Under Falling Skies could be an opportunity for AP-prone players to indulge themselves. 
Spend as long as you want thinking through every possible move without having to worry about other players trying to hurry you up. Maybe I'm wrong about Underfalling Skies being an AP problem. It's a feature, not a bug. Underfalling Skies comes with multiple cities. Aside from Roswell, which is used for the intro game, each city has an ability which changes the game a little bit, but not enormously so. The board is modular, and each piece has an easy and difficult side. You can use these to adjust the difficulty level from 0, all easy boards, to 4, all difficult boards. Keep in mind, Underfalling Skies is a difficult game. Even on easy mode, I found it a reasonable challenge, and once you start flipping those boards over to the difficult side, you can get in over your head pretty quickly. I think even the most expert players will find it hard enough to be interesting. There's also a campaign game, which I'm not going to say too much about because... spoilers. I will say that this is not like a legacy game. No major changes, destruction of components, or anything like that. It's more like a way to stay engaged with the game over multiple plays and not feel like you're just doing the same thing over and over. Underfalling Skies has a really good balance of luck versus strategy. Enough luck that it doesn't feel like a pure logic puzzle, but enough strategy to not be as chaotic as some Czech games titles like, say, Galaxy Trucker. For a relatively quick game, Underfalling Skies packs a lot of punch, both in difficulty level and in thinkiness. It's a great choice if you like solo games, want a challenge, and don't mind having that Space Invaders beep 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 stuck in your head. It will happen, I'm just saying. And that's Underfalling Skies. My name is Sarah, look me up on Twitter, at Sarah Ovenall. Especially if you know of other challenging solo games, then I really want to hear from you. In the post-apocalyptic world of Radlands, there are punks, raiders, and camps, and a very, very limited water supply. You play a leader of a tribe that's fighting to protect your three camps from a vicious rival gang. This two-player dueling card game forces you to make difficult choices with every turn, as many of the actions require water to execute. Radlands, designed by Daniel Pienchik, who was an external developer of the Magic the Gathering, with artwork by Lena Cassette, Damien Mamalidi, and Manny Trembley was published in 2021 by Roxley Games. The standard games comes with a deck of cards, some cardboard water disc, and two player aids, all of which fits nicely into a box about the size of a box of checks, or for the younger folks, an iPhone box. It's a deluxified Kickstarter version, which is much pricier and currently difficult to find a copy of, comes in a regular size game box, along with upgraded water discs and very cool playmats. The standard game is all you'll need, really. It's small and compact, but it packs a big punch and endless replayability, with each game lasting about 20 to 40 minutes. And for a game that's set in a Mad Max type of world, the artwork is striking, vibrant, and so much fun to look at. The back of each card features a shadowy punk figure standing in front of a hot pink background. The game comes with 46 person cards and 20 event cards, and there are 34 camps. Players are dealt 6 camps and they get to choose 3 for their game. They place these 3 camps right in front of them in a row, ensuring that there are spaces for 2 cards in front of each camp, as well as column of 3 cards to the left and to the right of the 3 camps. Choosing these 3 starting camps are important because they provide you with a number of cards you'll draw for your starting hand, plus a various assortment of abilities which will make each game very different. In your right card column, each player has a water silo, a raider's card, and room for your player aid. The water silo and raider's card all need to be activated in order for you to use them, otherwise they just sit in this column. 
The love column is reserved for event cards that you play, and depending on its number on the bomb icon, they get placed in the 3, 2, or 1 slot, with the 3 slot being the one closest to you and the longest to activate. Your play area will then be 5 cards across and 3 cards deep. So how do you play? At the start of your turn, you resolve an event card if it's in the 1 spot, the spot farthest away from you in your play area and then you replenish the three water discs, no more or less, and then you can perform any of the following actions any number of times and in any order. You can play a card, draw a card, junk a card, take the water silo, or use an ability. And this is where the elegance of the game shines through. Playing cards and activating cards in your play area in a specific order that maximizes attacks on your opponent. The combinations are endless, but since resources are so limited, you need to make sure they have the most damage on your opponent's people and camps. Well, cards often have a cost which is printed on its left side, and when they come into play they aren't ready yet to be used, unless you have another ability that breaks that rule, or you use a restore ability. You can also junk a card to receive the effect of a card which is printed on the top left of it. You can also gain punks to put backside up into your play area which not only makes your play area much more imposing, but provides another layer of protection for your camps. When attacking, you usually attack a card first in line in your opponent's play area, the line closest to you, unless a card specifically says something else. The characters on the player cards are just so colorful and interesting, right out of many sci-fi and post-apocalyptic stories. You might get the exterminator, who destroys all damaged enemies, or the gunner, who injures all unprotected enemies. There's also the mimic, who can use the ability of one of your ready people. So many different options. But these actions are at the mercy of your three water discs, unless you spend one water to take the water silo into your hand, which then you can later junk to gain one drop of that valuable liquid resource. Or you can activate your raider card with a raid symbol, which will do a lot of damage, but will take three turns in order to go off. When you're done performing all your actions, you return all the water discs and any extra water discs you've accumulated to their respective supplies. Your water does not carry over each round, but instead just get replenishes at the start of your next turn. Hence, you're really limited with your actions based on the water discs. Make good decisions, gamers! Gameplay continues until a player is done with all of their actions and then the next player starts a turn. The game ends when an opponent's three camps are destroyed. With how large the deck is and how many different camps are available to play, each game can feel so different. Some might say that certain camps are overpowered, but it is a random draw in the beginning and ultimately, the ability to destroy your opponent comes down in making all the right choices and player combinations with the limited resources you have. It's a game you'll immediately want to play over and over again. I personally have never played Magic the Gathering, but I can see how this type of card gameplay and action chaining can be addicting and just so satisfying. Just watch out for those punks. And that's Radlands. This is Meeple Lady for the 5 by You can find me on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok as Meeple Lady or on my website, BoardGameMeepleLady.com. Thanks for listening. Bye. Pound for pound, or maybe I should say ounce for ounce, Oink Games is one publisher that has really excelled in producing small box games that provide fun and engaging experiences that you can essentially take anywhere. Hi, I'm John Gonzalez, and today I'd like to tell you about Scout from Oink Games. Scout is a card game in which players are circus leaders attempting to create the biggest big top show. Well, that's the theme of the game, but it's mostly a pretty straightforward yet wonderful card game that plays in about 20 minutes. And the theme, to be honest, is almost non-existent, but that's okay because as a straight up card game with some scoring tokens, Scout is excellent.
In Scout, over the course of as many rounds as there are players, you are trying to beat other players' hands by playing matching sets of cards or runs of sequentially numbered cards. In order to beat an active set played by a previous player, your set has to be a higher card count. If the card count is the same, then you look at the strength of the hands. Sets of a kind will always beat a set of consecutive numbered cards as long as they're the same number of cards. A higher value set of numbers will beat a lower value set of numbers, so a pair of sevens beats a pair of fives, a three card consecutive set of one, two, three beats any pair, and so on. If you beat the active hand, you take the cards, flip them over, and take them as victory points. But the real trick of this game is that you can't arrange the order of your cards. Once the cards have been dealt, they must stay in the same order. Cards have different numbers on the top and bottom, and you're able to rotate your entire hand at the beginning of the round, but that's it. So you're only able to play cards that are already grouped together in your hand throughout the game. So what happens when you can't beat the active set? Remember I mentioned that every card has two numbers, one on the top and one on the bottom? Well, you can choose to rotate your card when you scout it into your hand. Having two different numbers on the cards really makes the game more interesting and gives you these great moments when someone puts out a card you need, and even though you can beat the active set with some cards in your hand, scouting that 7 seems really tempting when you consider that it can fit into your hand, creating a bigger run. Showing big sets is important in scout because whenever someone scouts a card from your hand, you get a victory point token, and if every player scouts from your hand, you end the round. When the round ends in this way, every player who still has cards in their hand counts them as negative points. Everyone that is, except for the player who played that monster hand. And let me tell you, it's such a satisfying way to end the round. Oh, your table mates will probably hate you, but it's worth it. A round can also end when a player plays all their cards, and this too can be satisfying, but your friends, and I hope they're still your friends after that monster hand, your friends can usually see it coming and it's somehow easier to deal with, but only by a little bit. And the coup de grace for scout is the scout and show action. Every player has a scout and show token that lets players, you guessed it, scout and show. You can only use it once per round. Do you wait to use it for when you spot a great card that'll let you put out an amazing set? Do you save it to use it to deny the premature, well, premature for you, ending of a round? It's another layer in this multi-layered game and it really adds some spice to the proceedings. At the end of every round, you count the cards you've taken as victory points as well as the victory point tokens you've got when players scouted from your active set, and you subtract any penalties. The game comes with enough tokens to keep track of scores from round to round, and it all fits in a box that's about the size of a, well, a chunky whiteboard eraser. Google shows it as 4.3 by 2.44 by 1.34 inches, if that helps you picture it. As you can probably tell, I am enamored with this game. It's one of those more satisfying filler card games. It clicks for most people in the first few turns, and it has a surprising amount of debt. For the last few months, I've been bringing it to game nights and sharing it with players, and it's been a solid hit. The rulebook has a two-player mode with modifications. It's quick and fast, as players can only scout three times each per round, and there are only two rounds. One interesting thing is that you can follow a scout action with another scout action as long as you have scout actions left, uh, but you must show at the end of your turn, so it's possible to scout enough cards to show a huge hand. Two-player scout definitely has a different feel to it, and frankly, I'm here for it. In a three-player game, the scout and show token becomes crucial in delaying the end of a round. I enjoy the game at any player count, and that has to count for something. Scout was designed by Kei Kajino and published by Oink Games. It was nominated for the 2022 Spiel des Jahres. For the 5 by, I'm John Gonzalez. You can find me on Instagram, Twitter, and Twitch as Book of Nerds. Thanks for listening.
Hello, Five by listeners, it's Ruth here, talking about a new-to-me discovery that fits perfectly into my collection of after-dinner two-player games. While recently staying in Chicago, I learned Aqualin, a two-player abstract game from Marcelo Bertocci, vaguely themed around an ocean reef where various marine animals come together to form schools. Published in 2020 by Cosmos, the game has players share the same board and scoring the same tiles at the end, but they'll do so differently, with one player looking at the type of animal on the tile, while the other looks at the color of said animal. Aqualand's setup is incredibly fast. You set the board, or reef, between the two players, create a pool of six tiles to choose from, and then decide who will score for groups of color, and thus who will score for groups of animals. Then you just select a start player, and you're off. Player turns have three steps. The first involves the player deciding whether to slide a tile already placed on the board, either horizontally or vertically. They can move that piece as far as they wish, however, should they reach another tile or the edge of the board, then they have to stop. The active player then selects a tile from the display and places it onto the board. And finally, they refill the display of tiles to six, and the turn is over. Players continue sliding and placing tiles until the board is entirely full, and then they score for groups of either type or color. Those groups must be a minimum of two orthogonally connected tiles, and the larger the group, then the more points they're worth. And once all those points are added up, if you don't like the resulting scores, well, you just shuffle the tiles up, switch up who's scoring which criteria, and play a second game. Aqualand takes about 30 seconds to set up, and about the same amount of time to teach. But what we found is that the more you play, the more you start to figure out ways to manipulate the tiles and to guess at your opponent's next move. By halfway through our first game, my husband and I were seeing more and more interesting ways to arrange the tiles to our advantage, and every subsequent game between us, well, it got more and more tense as we got better and better. Finding that sweet spot of moving and placing a group of tiles to be much better for you, but still kind of good enough for your opponent to leave it alone, well, that's the real puzzle I've been enjoying within the game. You start examining every possible move for how your opponent might respond, getting into each other's heads and trying to think multiple moves ahead. But at the same time, you rarely know exactly what their next move is going to be due to the randomization of the tile draw. With six colors and six animal types on the tiles, each combination is depicted only once, so keeping an eye on what's already out can be helpful. After all, counting on a yellow tile to show up isn't the best plan if five of six have already been placed. So you hope you've made the ideal move, only to see the exact tile they need to stop you come out. Or you neglect one thing for half the game, and then you realize when the end approaches that almost all the tiles left will form a large group for your opponent because they're all turtles and you didn't have enough time to separate them. It's tricky, it's fun, and like all the best two-player games, well, you find you're constantly focused on your opponent rather than on the game bits. Aqualand has a relatively small footprint, which is lovely, that is if you make one change. The game itself comes with just board, tiles, and rules, with the assumption that you're going to shuffle the tiles face down on the table to form a draw pile. I just added a dice bag to mine to draw tiles from, which makes the game take up pretty minimal space and saves the hassle of having to flip all the tiles face down at the beginning. Aqualand's 20-minute playtime makes it ideal for lunchtime or coffee break gaming, so making it playable for small setups is a boon. The production quality of what you do get in the game is lovely. The tiles are nice and chunky and engraved with clear animal symbols. 
However, I will point out that the color choices are not colorblind or even low light friendly. I've had to double take occasionally myself to distinguish between the green and blue. So definitely take that into account. Basically what you get in this kind of standard Cosmos small box is a quick playing, easy to pick up two player game that truly shines after multiple plays against the same opponent. Since that's when you really start to see some of the ways you can manipulate the board. The chunky tiles are a pleasure to slide around, the game is gorgeous, and available at $15 to $20, it was pretty much a no-brainer for me to grab a copy after trying it out on that recent trip. If you're a fan of abstracts, of quick lunchtime games, of sea life, and tend to play with the same partner, consider trying Aqualine out. I definitely think it'll be worth your time. Now I'm off to pastures and game tables new, but if you need me, you can find me at Roof. That's an R, four O's, and an F. Thanks for listening. Hello, my name is Aaron, and I run a small website called GameEnthuse.com, where I make content about board games and video games, and I'm thrilled to be joining the 5 by crew. This is my first review, so I hope that you would uh, keep an open mind, and in terms of uh, critiques or constructive criticism, please be gentle. So the game I'm going to be reviewing today is a game that, full disclosure, is a game that was designed and published by a friend. And that game is called Bittersweet, a delectably devious game of chocolates. Bittersweet was designed by Matthew Hawker with graphic design from Ashley Miller and illustrations from Olivia Rahm. Bittersweet is playable from one to four players. It takes about 15 to 40 minutes to play and is for ages 10 and up. Bittersweet was also published by Cool Games. So in Bittersweet, players are going to be amassing a set of cards that they're gonna score at the end of the game in order to get the most points. And those cards are gonna contain various types of chocolates having four major attributes. They are as follows. Shape. Shapes include pyramids, hearts, trapezoids, and spheres. Textures. Textures can be solid or creamy. Coating. Milk chocolate coating, crimson chocolate coating, dark chocolate coating, and white chocolate coating. Might I add that the illustrations are very cute and have a lot of personality. In addition to those attributes, there is an other category, which are going to be veggies and clusters. Clusters meaning uh, chocolates full of nuts, peanuts, nougat, whatever that really is, that kind of stuff. The game was originally designed as a two-player game, but it scales quite well between one to four. I'm gonna explain what a two-player game might look like. So in a two-player game, players would make a four by five grid of chocolate cards. I'm probably gonna be using the word chocolate and cards and grid and box interchangeably. So when I say grid, thematically, the grid is the chocolate box that players can be taking chocolates out of. Each player would also get a player sheet. Each player sheet contains a yum and a yuck section. Both players would then draw two preference cards. What are preferences? Preferences are the aforementioned attributes, with the exception of the veggie cards, which just contain a coating and then the veggie type. Other cards are always going to have a shape, a coating, and a texture. Some can actually have a shape, a coating, a texture, and can be a cluster, but not a veggie. Each player would take two preference cards and place one card under yum under their player sheet and the other card under yuck. So they're gonna be focusing on trying to get the yum cards while avoiding the yuck cards. Each card has scoring for both, much like a box of chocolate that contains a, a whole lot of things you don't know until you bite into it. This game does the same kind of thing. All the cards in the box or grid, the four by five grid, are placed face down when the game begins. So on a player's turn, 
they're able to take three different actions. Of those three actions, they can do two of them. They can do the same action twice if they wish. The first action they can take, a player can take a card from the box slash grid and place it into their hand. Or a player could flip over a card and reveal it. Third thing you can do is you can return a card from your hand face down back into the box. Each actual chocolate card has a point value in the upper left corner. So you're gonna score based on what your yums are at the end, deduct your yucks if you get any, and you're also gonna score the number on the cards themselves. There are three game ending conditions. When one of them are met, the game immediately comes to an end. The game ends when all the cards in the box or grid are face up. The game ends when all the cards in the grid are taken. The last condition in the game is each player has at least two empty wrappers, which means that throughout the course of the game, each player returned a chocolate back into the box. What I really like about this game is that on the surface, it is a fairly simple, straightforward game, but there's a little more complexity because some of the cards have text on them. Some of the text says things like on reveal, take another action. On reveal, activate another on reveal in your hand. On reveal, flip over other face-up cards. That could be used to extend the game in order for you to get rid of cards you don't want or gain more cards to get you points. That's sort of the double-edged sword. I like all those things about this game. I like the fact that it appears to be very simple on the surface, but there is more to it. There's wild cards. There's things that kind of stack and layer on top of each other. So that's the, those are things that I like that people who want something a little more straightforward might not like. If you couple it being not quite as straightforward as it initially appears with the randomness, that could create a combination of things that might make people who play a little more casually kind of like, well, this is much more than I thought that it would be or needed to be. Whereas somebody like myself really enjoys that about the game. I think it's the type of thing that is worth introducing to people, whether they be hobbyist gamers or not. I think there's a lot of fun to be had with it. And I think the randomness just makes it fun. You do the best with what you have. Sometimes you get weird combinations of yums and yucks. Just work with it. Anyway, I'm Aaron from Game Enthuse. It has been a pleasure to have recorded my first review for the 5 by. Hopefully people enjoy this one. Hopefully people go out there and check out Bittersweet. It's a really fun game. You can find me on Twitter at Indifference, the second I is a one. You can also find me at Game Enthuse on Twitter, as well as YouTube.com slash Game Enthuse. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to The 5 by your source for rapid-fire board game reviews. Find us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at 5 by Games. Join our BGG Guild number 2810. Support our Patreon at 5 by Games. Listen to us on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Or visit our website at 5 Thanks for listening.